0: Accordingly, at this time, certain Chaldeans came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O King, live forever. You, O King, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, drum, and entire musical ensemble shall fall down and worship the golden statue. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These pay no heed to you, O king. They do not serve your gods, and they do not worship the golden statue that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought in. So they brought those men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods, and you do not worship the golden statue that I've set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp drum and entire musical ensemble to fall down and worship the statue that i have made well and good but if you do not worship you shall immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire and who is the god that will deliver you out of my hands shadrach and meshach and abednego answered the king "O nebuchadnezzar we have no need to present a defense to you in this matter If our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and out of your hand, O king, let him deliver us. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods. We will not worship the golden statue that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was so filled with rage against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face was distorted. He ordered the furnace to be heated up seven times more than is customary and ordered some of the strongest guards in his armies to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. So the men were bound, still wearing their tunics, their trousers, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. Because the king's command was urgent and the furnace was so overheated, the raging flames killed the men who lifted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But the three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound into the furnace of blazing fire. Then Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up quickly. He said to his counselors, Was it not three men that we threw bound into the fire? They answered the king, True, O king. He replied, But I see four men, unbound, walking in the middle of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the fourth has the appearance of God, of a God. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the door of the furnace, of the blazing fire, and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their tunics were not harmed, and not even the smell of fire came from them. Nebuchadnezzar said, Blessed be the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. They disobeyed the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that utters blasphemy against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn from limb limb, and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. The word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be be to God. God.
1: Let us pray. Holy Spirit, make our hearts restless until they rest in you. Amen. Brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, our reading today takes, lo- takes place not long after our reading from last week. If you recall, last week we heard of Jeremiah's letter that he wrote to those Judahites, or Jews as they had come to be known, who had been carried off as exiles into Babylon. And while Jeremiah's letter contained some good news for those exiles— It contained bad news for the Jews who were still in Jerusalem, for it said that Babylon would not be soon defeated and that those Jews in Jerusalem would not be spared from exile. Well, it's during this exile, which did come to pass shortly after Jeremiah wrote that letter, that our story today takes place. In chapter 1 of Daniel, we're told that Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, are among this first set of captives to be led out of Jerusalem and to be put in exile in Babylon. And rather than ignoring this first wave of exiles, many of whom were educated nobility, and letting them form their own refugee community, King Nebuchadnezzar decides to take advantage of them, of the talent and the education present in this group, and he conscripts many of their young men to serve him in his government, after being properly trained, of course. So Daniel and his three friends are among this uh, group of conscripts, and they enter a three-year program of education and training and, uh, in the ways of the Babylonians. Part of this program, of course, is the taking away of their Hebrew names and the giving them proper Babylonian names. Daniel is uh, renamed uh, Belteshazzar. Hananiah is renamed Shadrach. Mishael is renamed Meshach, and Azariah is renamed Abednego. And it is these three friends of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who in our reading today stand defiantly before the king when he orders that everyone must bow down before this statue he has made. Now defiance here is a dangerous choice, as we saw in the reading. For this king has already conquered their people, taken them from their homeland, and separated them from their families, all so they might serve in his royal court. However, if you pay attention to it, this reading is actually pretty funny as well. I don't know if you noticed during Sue, and Sue, you did a wonderful job reading. It's not so much dry history as it is political satire. It's not so much uh, a Ken Burns documentary as it is Saturday Night Live. The portrayal of Nebuchadnezzar, for example, he's this tyrannical buffoon, unable to see the absurdity of his actions, forcing his official to gather from all across this vast Babylonian empire for the dedication of this statue that he set up. And he's a man so driven by his emotion that when these three Jews defy his order, he becomes so angry that he orders the furnace heated up to the point where some of his strongest guards die from the heat when they go to throw these men in. And even his conversion at the end is drawn in sort of these ridiculous terms. No longer is he a raging lunatic threatening death to anyone who dishonors his statue. No, now he's a raging lunatic threatening death to anyone who dishonors the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He may have missed the point. And then there's this repetition of these long lists throughout the chapter, which highlight the absurdity of it all, so that we won't soon forget that all the peoples, nations, and languages, all the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, the officials of the provinces— when they hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the drum, and the entire musical ensemble are to bow down before the golden statue. Which golden statue? The one that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Say that three times fast. But humor aside, there's something compelling in the triumph of these three Jewish exiles, absolute underdogs, as they stand defiantly before Nebuchadnezzar perhaps the most powerful man in the world at this time, staying true to their God when their land, their culture, and even their names have been taken away from them. Their absolute trust and loyalty to God in the face of overwhelming opposition, their faith which drives them to remain standing when it would have been so easy for them to bow, well, it's an inspiration and a challenge for us today. I mean, just listen again to their response to King Nebuchadnezzar. The only thing they say uh, in the story, by the way. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to present a defense to you in this matter. If our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and out of your hand, O king, let him deliver us. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods and we will not bow down. To worship this golden statue that you have set up. What a statement of faith, of absolute trust in God to protect them. And what's more, even if God doesn't deliver them, they say, they still won't turn their backs on God. They still won't turn to idolatry and look for salvation from somewhere else. I mean, really behind the humor of this story, the satire of the story, even behind the underdog story that we all uh, love so much, what is really at issue here is resisting idolatry, resisting the temptation to serve any God other than the God of Israel, even when exiled to a foreign land. Last week, I compared our status as Christians to those Jewish exiles, for we too live here as foreigners. We, too, are only secondarily citizens of the world and its nations, and we, too, live according to a word and a logic that is alien to the workings of the world. And like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or perhaps I should call them Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, we, too, are faced with the temptations to worship idols, to seek salvation and protection from someone other than our Creator. Now, I'm not terribly concerned for you that you are at risk of the same kind of idolatry that we heard about in our story today. I'm not too concerned that you will abandon God to go and worship uh, the deities of some other religion, especially since none of those religions are in power over you, but there is another form of idolatry that is far more subtle, that, and therefore far more deadly, that surrounds us. Martin Luther, when he talks about the first commandment, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me, says that a God is that from which we are to expect all good and to which we are to take refuge in all distress. Or in other words, whatever or whoever you turn to in times of trouble, whatever or whoever you look to for the good things in your life, whatever or whoever you put your trust in, that is your God and if you find that your God is not the God in Jesus Christ then your God is what we call an idol so let me ask you a question then who or what is your God in whom or in what do you trust when times get difficult where do you turn Or when you imagine that good future for yourself, from where do you imagine it coming? Or to ask it another way, who or what do you fear? For your fear tells you something about where you think the power lies. These are not easy questions. They get to the very core of who we are. But once you start looking around, once you start looking for them, these idols, well, they pop out just about everywhere you look. First, there's the most common idol, wealth, that which Jesus calls mammon, what we might today call the market or the economy. How many of us, when we imagine that good future, do we imagine it as coming from our ability to accrue wealth, to make good investments? As coming from a healthy and properly managed economy, or a a healthy and properly managed retirement account, which allows us to earn money and to increase it. I bet more of us than would like to admit it. Or as I pointed out last week, there's a particular temptation for us uh, as Americans to make an idol of our nation. Looking to it for our well-being, or using a person's citizenship as a measure of worthiness. What about ourselves, our abilities, our competence? In many ways, our age is defined by the idolization of the individual, therefore the idolization of ourselves, as we are constantly told to look where? Deep within, to find meaning and truth and strength to follow our desires and our wants, no matter the consequences, to put our personal happiness above all other considerations. Of course, that's not an exhaustive list. There are many, many other idols. A quote that is attributed to John Calvin is that the human heart is an idol factory, making idols everywhere it turns. In a superficial way, I'm envious of the three faithful Jews in our story because the choice they face is simple, even if difficult. Bowing down is clearly idolatry. It's a, a simple distinction to make. But for us, idolatry is so ingrained in our way of life that we hardly notice it. And when we do think about it, it's almost impossible to draw the line. Am I treating my career as an idol? Or am I just trying to be faithful in my vocation? Am I putting my trust in my wealth, or am I just trying to steward it faithfully? Am I standing up for this or that cause because it's the right thing to do, or simply because I like the idea of being brave? Often those questions have no clear answers. So let me give you a promise instead. A promise that comes straight from the Ten Commandments. In fact, I've already read it. God says, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. I don't know if you've noticed this before, but that word shall has a double meaning. On the one hand, it's a command, Uh, you shall not do this, sort of like when we tell our children, you will eat your dinner, right? This is a command, it's understood that way. But on the other hand, it's also a promise. Both in Hebrew and in English, that word shall indicates or can indicate something that will happen. You shall be free from idols, you will be free from idols. For you see, the first commandment is not just a command for you to keep, it is a decision that God has made about you. God has decided to be your God. And that means that you will have no other gods. God has decided to be your Savior, and part of that saving is the death of your idols. It's not complete now, and so long as we're in this world, idols will still tempt us. But one day they will be no more, and you will trust in your creator wholly and completely. One day you will be totally free of all of those forces that seek to master you, for your life and your trust will be in Jesus Christ alone, and his life and his love will be yours forever. Amen.